Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. I'm David Baddiel and in today's episode I'm joined by a journalist and writer who's been covering Silicon Valley for over 15 years. He's the best-selling author of The Everything Store, Jeff Bezos and the Age of Amazon. And in his latest book, The Upstarts, he's turned his attention to a momentous era in Silicon Valley history, exploring the rise of Uber and Airbnb and how those companies are changing the world. He's Brad Stone. Brad, welcome. David, thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure. You've also brought along a number of objects that have shaped and influenced your writing and your career, and we're going to be talking about those and listening to clips from the audiobook of The Upstarts. Let's begin, actually, with why it's called The Upstarts. There's a quote at the front, which is fairly straightforwardly. It's from a dictionary, and it's the dictionary definition of what an upstart is and I guess if I could just uh, read out the important bit, I think we all know that an upstart is someone who's newly arrived on the scene, but it is also uh, a person who does not show proper respect for older and more experienced people or for the established way of doing things. It says in Merriam-Webster's Learner's Dictionary. So, was that what you were interested in—the kind well, of rebellious element of what these people really do? It's really the juxtaposition between the two definitions. Okay. An upstart can be just a newcomer or an innovator in a field, but there is also a negative connotation to it. Somebody who kind of comes in, a blunderbuss, who uh, wrecks things. You know, the two companies that I profile in the book, Uber and Airbnb, kind of straddle that line. And I thought, you know, this dual definition of the word kind of frames two different interpretations. So I want people to read this book and kind of decide, which is it? Is it an upstart in the fresh, new ideas, challenging uh, convention sort of way? Or is it an upstart in the more destructive connotation? Okay, because one of the things I think is that the book is ends up fairly neutral in that. I started to wonder about three quarters of the way through, does Brad like these guys or not? And you've hung out with them quite a lot. I mean, I should say the book is a memoir of your time with them to some extent. When did you start and go and meet them? So the project starts around uh, early 2015. But I had been thinking about it throughout 2014, and I cover technology in Silicon Valley. So I had met them and written stories about these companies beforehand. The first part of the process is really selling the book. Okay. Because yeah. what I want to do... so the, the, It's like a startup in yeah, that respect. The Silicon Valley companies are kind of congenitally secretive, right? They right. are trying to sell a message to the world about what they are about. And they're generally uncomfortable with a journalist kind of ferreting out, you know, underneath the the surface level, the the real story. You know, Mm. they've got defenses, they've got layers of PR people, and they're not necessarily inclined to just share. And so it helps in my process when I have the inevitability of the book, that this is happening. And and then I, I went to both companies and I said, I would like you, this was in early 2015, I'd like you to be a part of this, I'm going to do it anyway. And there's something about that inevitability that tends to sort of force cooperation. Mm. Now, Airbnb came along much easier than Uber did. Uber, uh, I went to dinner with Travis Kalanick, the CEO, and he basically said, there's no frigging way I'm cooperating with the book right now. And he didn't use the word frigging. And then it was only a couple of months later, maybe six to nine months later, a new PR uh, person at the company convinced him that it would be in their interest to share their perspective. You know, it's a controversial company, Mm. lots of supporters, certainly today, lots of critics. And, you know, if they're not going to argue on their behalf, then who is? But part of what these companies are doing, and it's clear from the book, this is the case, is that they're building their own mythology as they go along. Right. And one of the things that you do, to some extent, is deconstruct 
parts of that because it happens quite a lot. You say the story always goes that these three guys did this or right. whatever, but then you say, well, actually, it didn't quite happen like that. And this goes to actually my first quote unquote object that I wanted to bring in this okay. podcast, which I actually didn't bring it. Oh, uh, didn't but bring I'll describe it. it. Okay. Yeah. I'll describe it. Yeah. So I have a whiteboard in my office and I usually fill it up with notes and outlines of the book project I'm working on. But at the top of the whiteboard, I have two things written, kind of inspirational sayings for myself. One is, the real stories have not been told. Mm. And the other is, find the straight line. And the real stories have not been told is like me telling myself that we may think we know the Uber story or the Airbnb story, but there's always archaeology on those founding stories and uh, different perspectives to mm. unearth. And yeah, these companies do mythologize themselves and often they leave out parts of their history that are inconvenient. And mm. so, yeah, there's there's a like, can, I have a conviction that talking to as many people as possible and, and not just the founders, but the people kind of cast aside by these companies or who had outside perspectives very early on can share valuable things. So let's have a clip from the audiobook, uh, since we're talking about the moments that were later mythologized by these guys. In this extract, Airbnb founders Joe Gebbia and Brian Chesky go and hear a speech by venture capitalist Greg McAdoo whilst at a startup school event, and that lights some fire within them. McAdoo spoke about why being a great entrepreneur required the precision of a great surfer. If you want to build a truly great company, you have got to ride a truly big wave. And you've got to look at market waves and technology waves in a different way than other folks and see it happen sooner. Know how to position yourself out there. Prepare yourself. Pick the right surfboard. In other words, bring the right management team. Build the right platform underneath you. Only then can you ride a truly great wave. At the end of the day, without the right wave, even if you are a great entrepreneur, you are not going to build a great business. That was an extract from the audiobook, The Upstarts, read by Dean Temple. So what that illustrates, I think, is that something that runs throughout the book, and I think throughout the self-mythologizing of these companies, which is that they are people who seem like they can spot the moment. They can spot the beat in history. This is it. This is where we get on. And, and they've spotted it before anyone else. It always feels like that's what it's about. The funny thing is the wave took both of these companies by surprise, and a lot of the investors too. I mean, remember the first section of this book is called Side Projects. Mm. And it's because none of the founders really believed all that fervently in their own business. I mean, the, the founders of Uber, Travis Kalanick and Garrett Camp, they didn't think it was a very big idea. And they went out and recruited another CEO to lead the company over the first year. They thought it was just a limo business in, in San Francisco that would help them ride around the city in style. But that's the point, is that this is this is the truth as recorded in your book, but I think that's not the truth if you listen to Travis Kalanick now talking at TED or whatever. It's a sense in which, oh, no, I am a history maker, and I kind of always knew that about myself. And in their quieter moments, I think, you know, they'll you can get them to acknowledge that the timing was perfect. Mm. Um, when they first came up for the idea for Uber, it was before Steve Jobs invented the iPhone. Or at least it was definitely before the App Store uh, came out a year after the iPhone was introduced. So they were already underway. They had developed an application for the BlackBerry. And it was the arrival of this service on the iPhone and then copied by Google with mm. Android phones that allowed Uber to really take off. You know, something that other technology companies had tried over the years. And it was the arrival of this technology, really a great wave that propelled the businesses forward. Well, since we're talking about a great wave, uh, one of your other items is a great wave. 
Tell us about that. So item number two, and this is almost a great coincidence, as we could tell from this uh, from this speech. I was playing with the image of a great wave in the book. Mm. Um, it was I sort of cast it as a metaphor throughout. The businesses are propelled by these technologies that arrive at just the right time. And then I see the cover that my publisher has presented for the book. Yeah. And it's an image of a digital wave that is uh, derived from this famous painting that people will probably recognize, the Great mm. Wave off Kanagawa, this famous Japanese stencil. It's a hokusai. For anyone who knows him at all, they will know the Great Wave, which is a, a beautiful uh, blue picture of sort of kinetic energy uh, as pictured sort of off that part of Japan that you described. Yep. And in the upstart, it's that but pixelated. Right. So it's a kind of Pac-Man version. What I love of about the, the woodblock is, you know, you can almost miss it if you just glance at it. But there are these little boats, basically. So it's sort of humanity ah. being buffeted by these forces larger than it. And I think that's that is a very excellent metaphor. It's the technology for what you story. Yeah. yeah, it's what we're all living through right now, having all these devices and internet connectivity wash over us yeah. and, and, and posed as like useful tools for our lives, but in some cases, sort of steering us and uh... well actually in terms of the, the the sort of being caught up in it and not quite knowing what's happening i should maybe say this is not the kind of book i normally read uh, i'll be honest with you brad i mean i really liked it and i really liked it partly because i thought oh i don't normally read this kind of stuff and i feel really involved in important stuff reading this because <laughs> there i am off with the fairies reading fiction or whatever this is about what's really happening in the world and i sh- should know about it and it's really interesting because you you completely draw these people as characters you know with a lot of detail what I loved about hearing and, and writing about those stories is that all the investors, all the wise men of Silicon mm. Valley, many or even most of them passed on these businesses. You know, yeah. they are supposed to be able to see the future. And, uh, you know, and, and these businesses just looked strange. I mean, they didn't look anything like the previous Internet technology companies. You know, they were not software companies. The CEOs, the founders weren't, they didn't look like a Mark Zuckerberg or a Larry Page. They were, you know, they're storytellers. Uh, the Airbnb founders are designers. They graduated mm. from design school. Obviously, hindsight is a wonderful thing. But with hindsight, it seems obvious because you think like, OK, here we have this new technology. And its first great exponents take two very, very big parts of our lives, how to get about and how to get shelter, essentially, if you're in a city that you don't know. Those are two really big sections of the human experience. And all all they did was they provided a communication network whereby those things could get to you quicker. Right. But in some respects, these companies were pitching a service that contravenes all of our parents' advice. Mm. Don't get into a stranger's car <laughs> and don't yeah. and don't go into a stranger's house. Yeah. And, you know, for a well, lot don't of... don't let a stranger right, into your yeah, house. Yeah, exactly. And I think for a lot of, like, older investors, they were like, why would I ever want to let somebody sleep on my couch? Mm. Uh, but and do I'm... you find then the characters of, of these guys distinct, as you say, from the characters of the first wave. Are they more millennial? Are they different? Well, let's go to this a third little prop okay. that I've brought, uh, which is a fairly unusual photograph. Okay. So to that exact point, these CEOs being quite different characters and investors really pattern matching, um, looking to see what succeeded to, you know, to use for what to invest in next. Well, the founders of Airbnb, as I mentioned, were design school students and the CEO, Brian Chesky, was actually a bodybuilder. And one of the things that sort of surprised me as I worked on this book was, you know, there were videos from his competition where you could see him and other competitors oiling up, flexing on stage. Right. Yeah. Um, 
you know, Bill Gates did not do that. No, no, no. Mark Zuckerberg probably not. So and, they're not nerds. Is what they, they've moved they away from being nerds. They're not nerds, and I think that is one of the reasons why it became somewhat difficult for investors to believe that these things could be huge. Can I? I just should explain for listeners. Uh, this is a, a photo of Brian Chesky, who is the CEO and founder of Airbnb. I don't know what kind of pack that is. That's like a two hundred pack. Uh, <laughs> it's more of our packs put together. I yeah, think. it's really a lot of packs and. Uh, he's also really red. He looks like he's been very out in the sun I, whilst I, he's been. There are some oils that have yeah. been applied. Yeah, God knows what's going on there. And uh, and this is he's got his own bodybuilding DVD. Has yes, he? yes. And you can still buy that or still see that. There, that is available on the internet. I is believe. It? Wow. Personally, if I had a house and this guy turned up wanting a room, I would say no. It's too frightening. <laughs> but, but here's the thing. Yeah. Here's the thing. And it's another reason why the investors generally passed early on, because they saw that this was going to be a regulatory battle in every city. Mm. There is centuries-old zoning laws. Uh, you know, hotels are clustered in certain neighborhoods and kept out of residential districts for a reason. You know, people don't want tourists coming into their into their neighborhoods at all hours of the night. So what these businesses required was a different kind of CEO, somebody who was comfortable on stage, mm. not necessarily flexing their muscles, but mm. telling stories, kind of normalizing these services, which seemed a little strange. And in some of these fights, able to kind of muster the political support of their customers. And mm. this is what Uber and Airbnb had to do again and again in places like London and San Francisco and New York. First of all, launch, even though it was illegal, so a little bit of boldness, or if it wasn't illegal, it was legally ambiguous. Mm. And then go, and when the regulators came down, go and talk about why it should be allowed and be charismatic and get people to come up in, in support of them. This is not something that a Mark Zuckerberg or a Bill Gates necessarily would have been good at. Yeah. But you can see why a former bodybuilder with the confidence to go and mm. preach to some degrees, I mean, it's almost close to a religious movement, uh, preach about why this could be good for the world. And, mm. uh, you know, so it was, he, he was kind of the right CEO for that business in the same way that Travis was probably the right CEO for Uber. Well, like, like all religious movements, of course, it has an origin story. And uh, let's listen to the audiobook again, because this clip is essentially the origin story of Airbnb. Uh, it's when the three of them, uh, the three wise men of Airbnb, met at the or met to go to the inauguration of Barack Obama. It was the beginning of something remarkable. Nearly two million people poured into Washington, D.C. the week of January 19, 2009, for the inauguration of President Barack Hussein Obama. But not everyone there was just bearing witness. Among the throngs that gathered to brave the mid-Atlantic winter chill, two groups of young entrepreneurs from San Francisco were on the verge of not just watching history, but making it. The three founders of a little-known website called airbedandbreakfast.com decided to attend at the last minute. Brian Chesky, Joe Gebbia, and Nathan Placharsik convinced a friend, Michael Seibel, the CEO of the streaming video site Justin TV, to go with them. They were all in their mid-twenties and had no tickets to the festivities, or winter clothes, or even a firm grasp of the week's schedule. But they thought they saw an opportunity. Their company had limped along for over a year with little to show for it. Now the eyes of the world would be on the nation's capital, and they wanted to take advantage. They found a cheap crash pad in D.C., an apartment in a drafty three-floor house near Howard University that, like so many other homes during that desperate time, was in foreclosure. The rooms were unfurnished, save for a pull-out sofa, which the three founders gave to Seibel. At night, they crowded onto the hardwood floor on airbeds, naturally, along with their host, the manager of a local restaurant. Their host was actually a tenant waiting for his inevitable eviction. 
He lived in the basement apartment and had used the Air Bed and Breakfast website to rent out the empty first floor and to three other guests his own bedroom, living room, and walk-in closet. Sensing a promotional opportunity, Chesky emailed the staff of Good Morning America about the closet, and a producer promptly included it in a roundup of unusual accommodations for the inauguration. By day, the founders and Seibel passed out air bed and breakfast flyers at the DuPont Circle metro station. Rent your room! Rent your room, they cried to the bundled-up commuters who mostly ignored them. At night, they met other air bed and breakfast hosts in the city, attended any inaugural parties that they could get into, and answered multiple emails from a disgruntled customer, the guest in the basement bedroom. The woman had driven her Volkswagen bus from Arizona to D.C. with her support dog, a chihuahua, and she apparently wasn't too keen on the crowded accommodations. In a barrage of messages to the company's email account that week, she complained that she was certain she smelled marijuana, that the juice she'd left in the fridge had been taken, and that the house didn't comply with Americans with Disabilities Act regulations. At one point, she threatened to call the police. The founders of the company sat just a few feet above her head, trying as best as they could to assuage the anger of one of their few actual customers. On the day of the inauguration, the group awoke at 3 a.m. to try to claim a good viewing spot in the National Mall. They walked two miles to get there, buying warmer coats, hats, and face masks at a kiosk in front of a metro stop along the way. By 4 a.m., they'd found a space on the green in the area open to the general public, a few football fields away from the presidential podium. We just kind of sat back-to-back in the middle of the mall and tried to stay warm, recalls Brian Chesky, now the billionaire CEO of that once-fledgling company, Airbnb. It was the coldest morning of my life. Everyone cheered when the sun came up. I think one of the ways in which that figures as an origin story is, of course, they're all very outdoors and at the mercy of the elements. And so it's like, and then we created this thing where no one will ever have to be that again. (laughs) Humble beginnings. Yeah, exactly. Passing out flyers yeah. at the it is almost at biblical, the metro station. I think. And you know, the thing that I loved about the beginning was the Uber founders were at the inauguration mm. too, and their beginnings are not not as modest, perhaps. But they instead of waking up early, they woke up late, and they had to jog down the street to yeah. get to the inauguration in time, and they almost froze. Yeah. But you know, the idea that. It was just eight years ago that both sets of these founders are kicking around anonymously Mm. and, you know, the iPhone has just launched. And Mm. and so in the space of a single presidential inauguration, Mm. we have two companies worth a collective $100 billion and we are now all running our lives through these slender slabs of technology that we keep in our pockets. And, And our lives have changed in an instant from technology. And also we may find out that enormous amounts of startups were present at President Trump's inauguration, many of whom couldn't be seen at the time, but they were were there, definitely. I have a feeling the tech community did not embrace it as firmly (laughs) as the last inauguration. That's not what Trump thinks. (laughs) One of the things uh, I think people don't know about Airbnb is they started up, didn't they, as a kind of individual event-based idea. They, they, their idea was we'll focus on something like the inauguration or a big seminar that's happening on San Francisco. I mean, did they know from the start we're going to move from that to being a permanent sort of holiday and travel-based company, or was it all about Here's a big event. We'll provide accommodation. I, I don't think they had a lot of farsight about it. I think, yeah, it was. It started out as a conventions business mm. or a conferences business. They went and they they launched the service around the Democratic National Convention, mm. then the Republican Convention, then the inauguration. And it was only in, uh, until they went through this startup school in Silicon Valley called Y Combinator that the uh, the founder, a guy named Paul Graham, started to convince them that uh, this could be an everyday activity. 
Um, at the time, there were hosts that had been just kind of organically embracing the service in New York. And Paul Graham told them, get on a plane, go to New York, talk to your hosts and figure out why they're doing this and mm. then just, uh, you know, do more of that. There was a thing. I mean, I don't know the exact history, but, you know, I have used VRBO and Owners Direct and stuff like that. I mean, do, do they proceed Airbnb? They definitely did. And now, so, so what made Airbnb different? Right. So those businesses really thought of themselves as vacation rental businesses. Mm. The properties tended to be clustered on, in vacation spots, on beaches and, you know, and, and hideaways. And one of the intuitions of Airbnb was that, you know, that this could be an urban activity mm. that young people would do that, you know, almost like an internet version of youth hostels. And Airbnb was not the first company to come up with that. There was a predecessor company called Couchsurfing that I talk about in the book that mm. uh, had a little bit too much idealism and mm. registered as a nonprofit and ended up going nowhere. But, you know, the fact is that these are marketplaces. And so your success is kind of dependent on how much volume you can get, how much supply mm. you can get to then attract people. And what Airbnb was able to do really well was get lots of people in major cities in New York and London and Paris and and uh, and San Francisco to embrace this as a way to make more money. Um, to kind of brand things as well. As you said, they would design people. So my memory is that those other companies, they didn't have a brand, really. They yeah. were just like, that's somewhere where you could go and there'll be some houses. But and, Airbnb, it's selling something else, isn't it? I and, mean, even if it's not real, it's selling a lifestyle. And trust, right? Mm. Because you are making this leap. Uh, and, you know, the, they focus a lot on these trust mechanics of seeing somebody's photo, seeing their rating, seeing the comments from previous guests, all these little intangibles that might make you feel a little bit more comfortable about staying in a property, particularly if the host is going to be there. Mm. You know, that's a large percentage of Airbnb properties. It's not It's not all of them. Um, less and less so, I think. Yeah. Because the idea of air bed, and it does imply here's my spare room, here's an air bed. But now when I go in Airbnb, it tends to be properties that people are not in. And that does tend to be the more controversial aspect mm. of it because then you're really just taking a property off the market and maybe you're affecting home prices or rental rates. Or, and hotels are going to get upset. And they certainly, as they, as they have done. And they certainly are. Yeah. 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 I mean, one thing you do cover a lot in the book, not, again, I didn't know about most of these, but the... People sort of know that Uber have got into trouble, but Airbnb have had their fair share of quite, you know, difficult controversies, haven't they? They're a little better at uh, at managing their reputation, at polishing the halo over their own heads. And, mm. you know, they talk quite a bit about fostering a community and creating more authentic experiences for travelers. And I find that's all, you know, legitimate. But, you know, the fact is, is, you know, they also in some cities were just illegal. I mean, you know, in New York, you weren't really supposed to rent your house for less than 30 days. There were very old rules around that because uh, that was, you know, combating illegal hoteliers. And Airbnb came in kind of quietly, didn't really warn its hosts or its guests about that. Mm. Um, you know, most hosts in New York would be breaking their leases by using Airbnb. But but like they identified that this was particularly during the recession that this was going to be a way for people to make some extra money and it was a service in, that people wanted to use and uh, you know so they did it with a smile. Yeah, uh, well, whereas... but, but Airbnb are very committed uh, to this yes. sense of themselves as sort of cultural revolutionaries yes. as well that, that we're creating a better world through sharing 
rooms. And yet you go and you talk to that state legislator on the east side of Manhattan, or I'm sure there's plenty of people here in London who would find that to be disingenuous mm. because they've had to deal with some of the fallout. Hosts losing their leases because, you know, Airbnb, they, they didn't realize Airbnb broke their lease or neighbors up in arms because the person down the street mm. has turned their home into a hotel. I mean, mm. I don't know about you, but I probably wouldn't like it if my neighbor did that, moved out, but kept the home and just Airbnb'd it. So the book, in a way, it's this idealism which is a weird type of idealism because it's a very economically charged idealism. It's not pure, like, it's not like couch surfing, as you say. Those guys tend to fall by the wayside. There's, people want to make money here, but it does have the idealism. And then there's a kind of growing up that happens throughout the book with both companies where they realize, oh, we can't just play things exactly as we like. There will be people who will oppose us and there will be regulation. One of the things that happened is there were some pretty severe consequences to the uninhibited growth of both companies. And as, as tragic as it is to say, there were some deaths in both mm, yeah. that both companies yeah. were somewhat responsible for. There were accidents in Ubers, so it was almost inevitable. And there were homes that were ransacked mm. and, and actually people guess who would get like carbon monoxide poisoning yeah. in, in unregulated homes. And mm. so I think both of these companies where they started out as sort of marketplaces and they were just gonna let the activity happen and they wouldn't they didn't think they'd have to be responsible for mm. it. And then these crises happened, people came down on them very hard. And they learn to, yeah, take a little bit more responsibility, walk in the shoes of their customers, stand yeah. behind their customers. And sort of old style, you know, <laughs> retailers. A little less clean than perhaps they thought. But yeah. in, in Uber, it was insuring the ride. In Airbnb, it was handing out carbon monoxide monitors and offering insurance to hosts in the, or, or re reimbursing them if, if their places got trashed by an unruly guest. Let's talk a bit more about Uber. Uber are very much in the news at the moment. And that brings us to the next audio clip from the upstarts. In this one, the Uber founders are in Paris for a incredibly important sounding conference called Le Web. McCloskey remembers one dinner at a fancy restaurant in Paris where the debate raged over the best way to run an on-demand network of town cars. The restaurant was elegant, with expensive wine, light music, and a sophisticated French clientele. Apparently, there was also paper over the tablecloth, because Camp and Kalanick spent the entire meal scrawling their estimates for things like fixed costs and maximum vehicle utility rates. When we left that dinner, the entire tablecloth was covered in math, McCloskey says. There was no, let's go to dinner and talk about life. This was Travis's life, connecting over analytical problem solving. That was how he connected with people. Parisians must think Americans are the craziest people on the planet, McCloskey remembers thinking as they left the restaurant. On a separate night in Paris, the group went for drinks on the Champs-Élysées and then to an elegant late-night dinner that included wine and foie gras. At 2 a.m., somewhat intoxicated after a night of revelry, they hailed a cab on the street. Apparently, they were speaking too boisterously, because halfway through the ride home, the driver started yelling at them. McCloskey was sitting in the middle of the back seat, and at 5 feet 10 inches tall, she'd had to prop her high heels on the cushion between the two front seats. The driver cursed at them in French and threatened to kick them out of the car if they didn't quiet down and if McCloskey didn't move her feet. She spoke French and translated. Kalanick reacted furiously and suggested they get out of the car. The experience seemed to harden their resolve. It definitely lit a fire, McCloskey says. When you're put in a situation where you feel like there's an injustice, that pisses Travis off more than anything. He couldn't get over it. People shouldn't have to sit in urine-filled cabs after a wonderful night and be yelled at. That cantankerous Paris taxicab driver may have left an indelible mark on transportation history. 
Let's, uh, going back to Silicon Valley, can I look at your next item, which is your previous book, which covers probably the biggest figure in the last wave of internet giants? Right. The, the, my last book, which was really, in a, in a way, a starting point for this one, was The Everything Store. And it's the story of Amazon and Jeff Bezos. You look back at that first wave of internet companies, and almost all the companies are either gone or feebled. Mm. Yahoo, AOL, mm. yeah. InfoSeek. Um, InfoSeek, I haven't even heard yeah, of. Yeah, no, no. You, wouldn't, you <laughs> yeah. wouldn't hear about any of these companies. But Amazon now, hundreds of billion dollars in revenue, hundreds of thousands of employees, and still manages to... This is going to be a really geeky Silicon Valley term, like innovate mm. at, at scale. Okay, right. what, what does so that mean? They're big, but they keep coming up with new stuff. You right. know, the, most companies get big; they slow down. Lethargy, inertia, take over. Amazon is expanding in many ways, and it's going to sound like an ad for Amazon. Mm. But believe me, they did not like my account in part because. Yeah, I heard this. Carry on though. Yeah, in part because what you know what he's managed to do, and I think what Uber and Airbnb went and actively copied was he creates. A culture at Amazon that is a high-achieving culture, but kind of fierce, kind of brutal, you know? Sends a lot of people scurrying away with post-traumatic stress disorder. (laughs) These are hard places to work. Yeah. And very deliberately so. Can we just, before we leave Amazon, I'm going to have to bring something up, which you sort of mentioned, which is Amazon and Jeff and his family did not like this book. And in fact, on Amazon, brilliantly, one star uh, was given to this book. Thanks for reminding me, Dave. Uh, But it's so funny. I love this. Mrs. Bezos uh, gave your book one star. Yes. Um, Now, why was that? Well, this was a couple of weeks after it came out in 2013, Mm. and I couldn't have been more surprised because, Mm. you know, we have not heard much from her in the the years of Amazon's rise. She didn't like the characterization of her husband as, I think, a somewhat fierce and driven individual. She claimed there were inaccuracies in the account. She didn't really produce anything of substance. She mentioned one or two little things. Um... And then I think there was a maybe perhaps an unspoken one, which is I dug a little bit into the family history. And, and you know, Jeff has an interesting story. His parents were teenagers when he was born, and he never knew his biological father. And I, I went and I found the guy mm. who, who didn't even know what had happened to his son. Really? I walked in his bike shop, and I said, I want to talk to you about your, your son. And he had no idea what I was talking about. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's stirring up quite so a So it stirred thing. up a little family history. Yeah, because did that uh, guy then... Decide, oh, I really touch. want to be in touch with my son. In this case. I don't think it was financially <laughs> motivated, uh, but he did have a, lo- a, a degree of wistfulness about yeah. uh, his long lost child. Okay. And he was quite surprised to know that this child had grown up to be one of the wealthiest people in the world. Yeah. Yeah. And so there was a little family drama, you know, that, that they had moved well past. To them, it, was, it might have seemed irrelevant that there was a, a biological father in, in, the, in the past. Um, but, you know, to me, you look at Steve Jobs uh, or Larry Ellison or, for that matter, Barack Obama or Bill Clinton, like just m- almost mysteriously all figures with absent parents or biological fathers. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, to some extent, if we're going to be armchair psychologists, that there is a degree of maybe motivation or proving mm-hmm. oneself that uh, comes from that experience. Mm. So what were you going to tell me about how this book relates to your wider work? I just think, you know, that the fact that these companies have changed our lives in in ways that almost, you know, are unrivaled by policy or politicians. Mm. Like, you know, the fact that, you know, we we can shop from home or read on a device or order a car with our phone. And but this idea that like the real stories were out there and hadn't been told, like, you know, after the Amazon experience, um, I was quite motivated to continue that work. And Uber and Airbnb presented themselves as kind of the disciples of Jeff Bezos, Mm. you know, 
Bezos invested in both Uber and Airbnb. Mm. I feel like they've modeled themselves after Amazon to a certain extent. To different degrees, they've used Amazon culture. So Amazon has 14 company values that you can see right. on its website. Uber has 14 company values, right. some of them quite similar. Yeah. And so they ported little pieces of Amazon and, and little pieces of DNA from this company end up in the in the two companies that I write about in the upstairs. One thing about that, that um, company value and stuff like that, I read those 14 company values, but I have to say that is when I start to think this is just bullshit. <laughs> Because uh, it's so abstract, it's so intellectually abstract. I mean, it essentially is just motivational quotes of one sort or another. I mean, how do they actually apply to running a corporation? Yeah. Well, no, I mean, I think they're important. I and should, I, I, I think might we try should, and just find we should, one. We can can you find it? it? Yeah. Yeah, because I'm interested in that. I've read them all. And because I, I was thinking, if one day I want to set up a multi-billion-dollar company, you, this need is your, the, you need your leadership. These values. are the quotes yeah. that should. And then I thought, well, none of these will actually tell me how to run a company. Okay, here, here they are. Okay, okay, this is important actually because you know there are accounts from people who work at Uber or who have left Uber who say it's a difficult and adversarial environment. Mm. Well, there's one here called meritocracy and toast stepping. The best idea always wins. Don't sacrifice truth for social cohesion and don't hesitate to challenge the boss. So social cohesion was a phrase that actually Jeff Bezos of Amazon sort of, of landed on, which is this idea that you put people together in any collaborative work environment and they will tend to just for the sake of the well-being of the group find ways to agree. Hmm. And Bezos thought that that got in the way of good decisions. And that so you should actually be kind of fierce and that conflict produces better results. You know, if people are saying that Uber is a, a difficult place to work and, and they're being driven too hard, there it is in the in the values. Like, mm. you know, don't sacrifice for the sake of social cohesion. Mm. That they're basically just saying you don't have to get along. Mm. One thing I wanted to talk about, actually, was uh, the book also includes a lot of you meeting with the people who didn't become huge successes, either investors who missed the moment or similar companies who were trying to do similar things that failed. And I, I find those interviews amazingly wistful and poignant. Do, do you find that? Do oh, you... I loved it. I mean, part of what I wanted to explore is, OK, if these guys are jerks, if, if the portrait that will emerge is that, you know, like Jeff Bezos, to build these upstart businesses, they had to be kind of assholes. Mm. Well, what does it look like when you don't have that quality? What does it look like when you just try to play by the rules? Mm. And and finding companies like Taxi Magic. You yeah. know, no one's ever heard that yeah. name, yeah. right? But they, you know, they had the Uber idea before Uber and they, they were going to play by the rules and it didn't work. And it didn't work because when you played by the rules, you couldn't add cabs when it got busy. Hmm. You couldn't raise prices when you needed to get riders off out of their homes and onto the roads. Um, you couldn't ensure the fidelity of the system. You know, if a, if I called a, a cab and they're on their way here and, and that cabbie sees uh, someone by the side of the road with a suitcase mm. handling them, the cabbie's going to go pick up that fare because that's a high value fare to the airport. And mm. so, you know, taxi magic gets overtaken by Uber and there's several similar ones. And it just, it just turned out that being nice guys and playing by the rules didn't work out. So let's have a final clip uh, from the audiobook of The Upstarts, uh, one in which you sum up how these two apparently very different companies have some very important similarities. The company's stories are different in many ways, but similar in a few crucial ones. Their founders' original motives were not stated in high-minded terms like Google's, organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful, or Facebook's, make the world more open and connected. Camp, Kalanick, and their friends wanted to ride around San Francisco in style. 
Chesky and his cohorts were looking for a way to make some extra cash when a conference came to town. Both startups offered age-old ideas, share a vehicle, rent your home, with new twists and ended up fostering a remarkable degree of openness among people who had never previously met. In a previous decade, most of us would have stayed far away from someone's private car or unlit home, scared by headlines about crime and by our mother's earnest warnings to avoid strangers. Airbnb and Uber didn't spawn the sharing economy, the on-demand economy, or the one-tap economy. Those labels never quite seemed to fit. So much as usher in a new trust economy, helping regular folks to negotiate transportation and accommodations in the age of ubiquitous internet access. The nearly simultaneous emergence of both companies has been striking. For most of its first year, Airbnb was a side project that many dismissed as wildly outlandish. Why would a sane person ever want to sleep in a stranger's bed? Eight years later, investors valued the company at $30 billion, more than any hotel chain in the world. Those founders who slept on the hardwood floor in Washington, D.C., they are worth about $3 billion each, at least on paper. That's right at the start of the book, but you mentioned something which at the end of the day is very important here, which is money and the value of these companies. I'm going to tell you a short story, which is that in about 2009, I had a few shares in something or the other, and I knew that Apple were going to bring out a phone. And I said to my stockbroker, I think we should invest in that. I think that's going to go through uh, the roof, isn't it? And he said, oh, well, we don't really buy that kind of stuff. We just have a portfolio of sort of regular shares that we do. And that was it. I just sort of forgot about it. I didn't, you know, I didn't even know how to you know, invest in Apple. You wouldn't be recording this podcast right now. You'd be on no, a beach somewhere. I would be on a beach somewhere, indeed. And so obviously I'm furious uh, uh, about that. But I wonder, I mean, can I ask you? You, know, you seem to know a lot about this stuff. Are you someone who knows how to invest, knows how to no, get your money to these no. places? I, I mean, you know, I'm a ink-stained wretch. Right. So <laughs> if I knew that, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't be recording this podcast. Right. But who are the people who, like, know how to get their money to these guys? Well, remember, to go back to an earlier part of the conversation, I mean, you know, a lot of the wise men of Silicon Valley passed on these companies, right? So uh, the in the earliest rounds, it was sort of the friends of these people who, mm. who saw how tenacious they were and made a bet. Um, but in both cases, I think there was a sort of patron investor. And it's actually an example of what good investing looks like. So there was a venture capitalist named Bill Gurley who invested in Uber. And he just had this idea that you could do like an eBay or an open table for transportation. And he was looking at these other companies we've been talking about, like Taxi Magic. None of them quite fit. And he finally discovered Uber and saw, okay, well, this is this is the right thing. There was a, a another venture capital firm, Sequoia, that did the same thing with Airbnb. Like, well, maybe this can be for like an eBay for places. They had invested in eBay. So you know, it's it's a degree of pattern matching, um, you know, and, and just getting to know the founders. Okay, so I started this conversation by talking about it not being entirely clear from the book. And obviously, you're a good journalist, so you want to remain neutral, whether you like these guys or not, whether you think they're changing the world for the better or the, or the worse. And obviously, you're a good journalist and you're an intellectual, so that'll be shades of grey is the answer. But if I had to pin you down and say, are these guys the good guys or the baddies, what would you say? I would say that I have been getting around London this last week on Uber. When I travel, I use Airbnb. I'm a customer of both companies. So I would say it would be disingenuous of me to come in and claim I'm a critic. I mean, I think there are plenty of reasons to criticize these companies, but I, I can get excited about their mission. Um, you know, Uber, if it succeeds in, in driverless car research and in getting people onto carpools, maybe it reduces 
the horrible traffic that we see now in major cities. And when I travel, if I stay at a hotel, I don't, I'm not enjoying the hotel or the cookie cutter experience of a tourist district. So if Airbnb can restore some authenticity to travel and to get us to meet people that live in cities and maybe go have dinner, not at a chain restaurant, but at somebody's home, I think that's kind of cool. So I can believe and support their ideals, and but I want to see them kind of held to those ideals and, and uh, not simply kind of build monopolies or extract wealth from workers. I want to see them make some progress toward their own goals. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm customers of the companies, and I, I do admire the CEOs and what they've built. And lastly, who do you think you might write about next? From the authoring business, I'll be taking a little break. Okay, okay. Uh, you're going with Airbnb. <laughs> but you know what? I It's not immediately obvious to me. I mean, from Amazon, it was a nice little hop to the upstarts because Uber and Airbnb were the most traumatic stories of the age in Silicon Valley. It's not clear to me who that is right now. We, we've got like five giant technology companies that are absolutely dominating the landscape right now. And I, I wonder if there can even be the next upstart or if every promising startup will simply be swept up by some of these really wealthy uh, technology companies. Mm. If you do alight upon one, uh, do tell me and I I'll will you, be investing. I'll Thank you, you very much, Brad Stone. Thank you, David. New from Penguin Random House Audio. In Little Wins, The Huge Power of Thinking Like a Toddler, Ella's Kitchen founder, Paul Lindley, reveals the nine characteristics and behaviours that we can all learn from recalling our toddler selves. From attention-grabbing tactics that would humble most marketing experts to the art of thinking divergently, Lindley shows how much we've lost in getting old and how we can get it back. Be they simple or complex, real or imagined, Fixable or otherwise, doubts govern much of our day-to-day -day lives as grown-ups. We worry about doing our job well, the team we are responsible for, or trying to find work in the first place. We worry about our friends and family, relationships new and old, and looking after the people we love. We worry about money and how to afford the things we want and need. And we worry about ourselves, where our lives are going, our ambitions and expectations, our health, the simple fact of getting older. I don't mean to paint an over-pessimistic picture of the way we live, or to suggest that, for everyone, the world is more shadow than light. Rather, I simply want to highlight that in our adult lives, we live in a complicated world, where worries and difficulties, though they may be small, are never far away. We are constantly trying to juggle the personal and the professional, our own needs and the needs of those who depend on us, the things we want to do versus the things we need to do. I've heard it said that we process more information in one day now than a person living in the 16th century did in their whole lives. That's mind-blowing and unsustainable. What becomes difficult in this context is to see and think clearly. The smartphone has become a constant companion for many of us, and just as technology is a liberator, providing access to information, services and ideas, it can equally be an oppressor, tying us to an always-on world of things that demand and divert our attention. The risk is that by focusing on so many things at once, we do none of them well. 
Our attention is split in so many ways that concentration can be fatally diluted. It's no wonder that according to Microsoft, the average human attention span is now less than that of a goldfish. Little Wins, written and read by Paul Lindley, is available now to download and own on Audible and iTunes.